Okay, grab your Bible. Uh, we're looking at Psalm 118. God speaks the Bible to us. Uh, he works by His Spirit as we hear His Word. Uh, we want to st- understand what He says. We want to see Him shape our lives. So let's ask Him to do that. Let's pray. Father, please do help us focus and concentrate. Help us think. Please do help us to hear what you say. Please do tune our heads and hearts to reality, to eternity, um, as we hear your word. It's in Jesus we ask it. Amen. Can I ask, is God good? Uh, Psalm 2 showed us um, humans who are convinced he isn't. Uh, They thought their best good would be freedom from God. We don't need to read a psalm to see it. Uh, Every disobedience says life would be better without God to rule us. His commands aren't good. But I want to ask a different question to is God good? I want to ask, is God good to you? Uh, Will he welcome you into his eternal home? Does he care for you day by day? Is God good to you? Will he welcome you into his eternal home? Does he care for you day by day? It's a different question, isn't it, to whether God is abstractly good. It's whether God is good to you. It's a harder question to answer when life isn't going the way we'd want it to. When life is difficult, (laughs) and when difficult doesn't even begin to describe how difficult it is, This psalm helps us step back and see that God is good. It helps those who trust Jesus as their king, who rescues them, to step back and say, God is good to me. Before we work through this psalm, uh, I'd like to make a couple of comments about who is speaking. Uh, First notice the shift from I, me, my to we, us, our. A lot of the psalm is one person thinking. So if you glance through verses uh, 5 to 21, most of it, uh, you'll, you'll see I, me, my. Verse 23 on, then, you see our, us, we. Uh, this psalm is the voice of one person interacting with the voices of many people. That's the first comment about who's speaking. And the second one is to say that that one person speaking is the king. It's the king's voice. You see uh, in verse 10, 11, 12, he's a military leader. Verse 14 to 16, uh, the impact of his victory is salvation for others. Uh, They're saved because the king is saved. Verse 19, uh, he receives a king's welcome as he comes to God's temple. So who speaks is the king and his people. They celebrate, they give thanks for a military victory that God gave to his king. Uh, They move towards the temple uh, where uh, where the thanks that they've felt, that they've spoken, uh, is echoed as they offer a sacrifice of thanks to God who saved them. I'm highlighting who is speaking because noticing who's speaking helps us think through and hear it more clearly. Helps us hear more clearly how the psalm was relevant to the ancient kings and their people how the psalm speaks to king about King Jesus and how it's relevant to us. So the, the king's part is fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, Mark showed us that uh, when uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem to the sound of verse 26. Uh, we'll come back to this later when, he, when, he, when Jesus quoted verses 22 to 23. 
in his confrontation with the temple leaders, the stuff about the cornerstone. If you trust Jesus as your king, you get to hear this as one of the king's people. If you're curious but not yet committed, you get to see why we think it would be so good for you to go all in with Jesus. So let's look at the psalm section by section. Uh, Then we'll think about how it's fulfilled in Christ and how it's relevant to us. The psalm begins and ends with its theme. Uh, The writer knows his answer to, is God good? Uh, First and last verse say, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The king says that and then the king or the the person who speaks his part says, verse 2, let Israel say, and the congregation answer, his steadfast love endures forever. The king says, let the house of Aaron say, and the priests then say, his steadfast love endures forever. And the king says, let those who fear the Lord say, and all who treat God the Lord as their Lord and God say, this his steadfast love endures forever. We see God's goodness in his steadfast love. I don't usually mention um, original language stuff, um, but there's a little Hebrew word, hesed, that lies behind those words, steadfast love. It comes up over and over in the Bible. Uh, sometimes it's been translated uh, back in history, further in some of the older translations as love or loving kindness. But it's more than that. It's covenanted, promised love, steadfast love, committed, loyal, faithful love. A love which echoes in the promise husbands and wives make to each other. For a love while life lasts. But the steadfast, committed, loyal, faithful love of the Lord endures forever. It's that promised love. And in verses 5 to 15, the king describes his experience of the Lord's steadfast love. God has been good to him. The Lord has saved him. God's goodness towards him hasn't meant immunity from trouble. In fact, verse 5, the king describes how he was distressed. He felt imprisoned by his danger. And then out of his distress, he called to the Lord. He asked God to act, and God did set him free. He's already been helped. He knows God, what God is like. And so he keeps saying, verse 6, 7, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hit me. He says to his people, verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. There is no safer safety than trusting in the Lord God to save The king knows it and his people need to know it, so he reminds them. Us. Now, for the ancient Israelites, the temptation was to look to the rulers of neighboring nations. Uh, They'd look to those neighboring nations to protect them. They're they're tempted to form alliances rather than trust the Lord God to save them. The king tells his people those nations, their princes, are false saviors. God saves. In verse 10 to 12, he describes his distress. <laughs> Every reason to feel distressed and confined and closed in. Just listen to the repeating word. He says, it was surrounded by all nations. They surrounded him. They surrounded him on every side. They surrounded him like swarming bees. 
isolated under sage, but in the name of the Lord, he cut them off. Repates in the name of the Lord, he cut them off. Uh, those nations, they flamed up and went out like fire among thorns. It's extinguished like the sudden blaze of thorns going up and then suddenly dying, the fire dies out, down quickly. In the name of the Lord, he cut them off. They didn't last. It was under pressure and falling under the nations, but because the Lord helped, he utterly destroyed them. The king experienced the Lord's goodness. He experienced the Lord's steadfast love. With God on his side, no human could hurt him. With God on his side, he defeated all nations. So verse 14, the king says, what Moses said when the same Lord God brought, uh, brought him and the nation out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Moses' song. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And verse 15, it's not just the king who's saved. There are glad songs of salvation in the tents of the righteous. Because when the king, the king's people... You see, they're, they're glad because when the king is saved, the king's people are saved. The king's people are glad because when the king is saved, the king's people are saved. So they join his praise. They speak the end of verse five, 15, uh, verse 16. They praise the Lord who saved them. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The king fought, fought in the Lord's name. Uh, but it's clear why he won. The Lord's right hand won. The Lord's mighty power was triumphant. The king fought, but really, the Lord God won single-handedly against all the nations. And the benefits of victory for the king are shared with the king's people. Hence this psalm. This psalm where they give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. The next few verses we hear the king's confidence in the Lord's steadfast love. The king's confidence in the Lord's steadfast love. He looks to the future. He looks to the past. He describes his present with confidence that God is good towards him. So we've heard the story about the past deeds. But verse 17, the king says he'll tell future ones too. He said, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. He expects to go into battle again under the Lord's care, but he is confident that he'll come out of it alive because of the Lord's steadfast love. God is good towards him. And when he does he come out, he'll give credit where credit is due. That's his future confidence. God will save him. We hear his confidence about his past. This is another angle on what he's just described. Uh, verse 18. Uh, he knows that he went into distress and difficulty because of the Lord's steadfast love. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So he, he looks back again at that distress and says, the Lord's hand was on him to discipline him. But it was discipline, not judgment. That's God's steadfast love, his kindness. It's suffering which shaped him not death, which put an end to him. And he's thankful for what God did. God could have rejected him, but he didn't. God treated him as a son. God disciplined him. Intensely painful by all means, 
but he knows God's goodness and steadfast love in that past. God's goodness and steadfast love brought suffering to shape him. Then verse 19, with the benefit of discipline and correction and formation and forgiveness, the king approaches God's temple. He comes there to give personal and public thanks. He says, open the gates through which the righteous may enter. Verse uh, 21, he speaks his thanks to God. I thank you that you have answered me, that you have become my salvation. His presence there alive in God's temple declares his escape from his enemies. And that God did it. God saved him from all nations. His presence there says something else as well. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The temple was built by Israel and her leaders, not by the nations. We've seen already this king rejected by the nations, but now we see he's been rejected by Israel and her leaders. But he has become the cornerstone, the critical stone, the stone without which the building would fall. The Lord has established him. It wasn't just all nations who rejected this king. It was Israel and her leaders who rejected him too. But that the first opinion has been overturned. It's been overturned by God. That's why the king is present with confidence in the Lord's steadfast love. It's why the king's people say, verse 23, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This see, God has been good towards his king. The Lord God has acted in steadfast love towards his king. It's good for the king and it's good for them as his people. So they rejoice. They're glad God turned it around. They say their continued dependence on God. They call God to act in the future. They say, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. They rejoice in the one who fought in the name of the Lord as he comes in the name of the Lord. And they proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They say to him and to each other, we bless you. It's plural. We bless yous from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. They know God's goodness and steadfast love towards them. They know he has blessed and kept them. He's made his face shine on them. He's been gracious to them. He's given them peace. Last two lines, verse 27, they bring a sacrifice tied up with ropes as far as the altar where they burn it in thanks to God who saved them. The last two verses, the king and his people who have looked to the past, the future and the present with confidence in the Lord's steadfast love, they speak his goodness. They aren't simply convinced that God is good, they're convinced that God is good to them. Past salvation and discipline, future rescue, present safety, God is their God and God is good to them. His steadfast, committed, loyal, faithful love for them endures forever. To say that the king borrows again from what Moses sang as he was brought out of as he and his and the nation were brought out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. This God is his God. The God who rescued them has rescued him and his people. He said, the king says, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. 
He causes people to join him who give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And they see more clearly why they would. said earlier, the king's part in this is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. When we read Mark's gospel uh, last term, uh, we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem to the sound of crowds singing, verse 26. Uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 9, uh, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus quoted uh, verses 22 and 23 of the psalm in his confrontation with the temple leaders who were rejected him, rejecting him when he said, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. The ancient king's experience of the Lord's steadfast love and his confidence in God's steadfast love towards him was a glimpse of the Lord, of the Lord's steadfast love for Jesus, of Jesus' steadfast confidence in God's steadfast love for him. Jesus was rejected by the builders and the nations. Israel and her leaders rejected their king. They handed him over to the nations to be crucified. They rejected him. And he went through that rejection with confidence in the Lord's steadfast love for him. He was disciplined, uh, not to correct something that was imperfect, but to make his obedience perfect. Obedience even to the extreme. He trusted his father not to give him over to death. He trusted his father that beyond death he would live. And the horror of his death is that he could not speak, verse 6, from under God's protection. It wasn't what man did that caused him to crumple in Gethsemane. It wasn't what man would do that caused him to crumple in Gethsemane as he anticipated the cross. He knew the Lord would be against him in his death. But at the same time, he went to his death strengthened by the Lord the Spirit. He endured this, the cross confidence that he would triumph, that his father would bring him through. He did die and his father did raise him. Uh, when Peter preached uh, Jesus' resurrection to Israel's leaders, again, he, he referred to this passage. This is Acts 4. Peter preached to Israel's leaders. He said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Oh, I'm sorry, the, the healed man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and the salvation in no one else. For there is no name under heaven, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus in his resurrection is declared to be the cornerstone. He's seen to be the one who is accepted by God, having been rejected by men. 
He didn't enter the earthly temple to the proclamation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But he has entered the heavenly temple. The heavenly temple where the living creature, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels, uh, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus lived and lives eternally with confidence in the Lord God's steadfast, committed, loyal, faithful love for him. He fulfills this psalm, the king in this psalm. And his people share the same confidence that he had, the same confidence that, his peop- that the king's people have. Not just confidence that God is good, but that God is good to me, that he is my God, that he is my salvation, that he disciplines me. This psalm is fulfilled in Christ, and as Jesus' people, we can have even greater confidence than the ancient king's people had, that God is good, that his steadfast love for us endures forever. They saw God's steadfast love for the king, we see even more clearly God's steadfast, committed, loyal, faithful love for his Christ. His Christ who he has raised from the dead and taken to his right hand in heaven. Uh, they heard their king say, verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear, what can, shall, can man do to me? Their king urged them, verse 8 9, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. King Jesus speaks that to us. Tells us not to find other confidences, but to put our confidence in Him and in His Father. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 say, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, you'll recognize these words, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's verse 6 from the psalm. The temptation can be to find protection uh, from the dangers of life by allying ourselves with the wealthy or the influential or by being wealthy uh, wealthy or influential. It's one of the princes we're tempted by. Uh, some friends gave us a copy of The Barefoot uh, Investor. It's the, a cult that's taken Australia by storm, I'm told. And uh, Scott Pape has lots of very sensible things to say about saving and spending. But his goal is to set you up to have enough money uh, so that whatever you, happens in life, you can say, I've got this. It's kind of good advice in many ways. But trying to set yourself up so that whatever happens, you can say, I've got this. Perhaps not as good. So it's exactly why money can capture our affections. It promises safety and security and comfort and convenience. It promises that it will deliver us from what we fear. But it's a false savior. Anyone and anything which feels like a danger which God can't cope with, Anything on anything which feels like a savior which makes God irrelevant to the dangers we face. Well, they're false saviors. 
God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So whatever happens, we can say, God's got this. God's got this. What's the biggest threat to being convinced that God is truly good towards us, though, is when it feels like he hasn't, or it feels like he's against us. It's the biggest threat to feeling convinced that God is truly good is when we experience hardship, distress. It doesn't feel good when life doesn't go the way we would have chosen. It doesn't feel good when we experience the normal brokenness of life. It doesn't feel good when we're rejected by those who reject Jesus because we're his people. But God is good. Verse 18, his king was disciplined, Christ was disciplined. Hebrews says Jesus was made perfect through suffering. It's how his his father formed him as the perfect savior. How much more do we need our father's corrective discipline, his directional formation? God disciplines those he loves. It's part of his goodness towards us. Once we see that, it changes hardship. Instead of making us wonder if God even loves us at all, we can receive hardship as an expression of his steadfast love. Now, receiving it as discipline uh, does not send us off to to puzzle and wonder, hey, what, what did I ever do that God did this to me? God doesn't like to play guessing games like that. That's not the point of discipline. Discipline can be corrective or it can be directional. It's forming us to be like Jesus. And seeing that that is how God works can turn a bad day into a good day as we trust our Father to do His work. Is God good? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is he good to you? If you're one of Jesus' people, you have every reason to say he is. Look at how he loved the ancient kings and their people. Look at his steadfast love for Christ Jesus, who sits now and forever at God's right hands. See his love and care in what Christ did in history. See his love and care in what his Father is doing by the Spirit as we await his return. See the eternal goodness of going home to be with Christ. See it and give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast, committed, loyal, faithful love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, please do help us to look back in history, to look uh, forward, to look and see in in our present that you are good. That you're good in yourself, but not just good in yourself, but good towards those who trust in your Son. That we can know that you, we who trust you, 
can know that you are for us. Thank you that we see your goodness so clearly in your Son who trusted you and went to the cross and is now raised and seated at your right hand. Thank you that we see your goodness both in your care for us in the day to day and your promise to bring us home in the way you use the good things of life and the hardships of life to form your children into the likeness of your son. Please grip us with the sight of your goodness. Please keep convincing us of your steadfast, committed, loyal, faithful love towards those who trust Jesus. That's in him we pray. Amen.